Welcome to episode 11 of the AHPBA podcast. Before we get started, one quick announcement. The AHPBA podcast will be branching out and will be starting a series of interviews for our Latin American audience. These will be conducted in Spanish by Dr. Eduardo Vega. He will be interviewing surgeons from around Latin America, and these episodes will be interspersed with our normal episodes. The first of these episodes will be episode 12, and we will plan to release this in two weeks. Without further ado, episode 11 of the HPBA podcast. We're excited to share with you our newest episode in our Show and Tell series, where we are discussing an interesting and impactful article from the journal HPB. Tim and I had the opportunity to meet with Dr. Michael Molinari, who was the lead author, along with his mentor, Dr. Alan Sung, on an article entitled, Patients' Treatment Preferences for Potentially Resectable Tumors of the Head of the Pancreas, published in 2020 in the journal HPB. This article focuses on decision analysis and treatment preferences, which is always a difficult conversation to have with patients when deciding on difficult surgery. Dr. Molinari is an associate professor of surgery at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where he specializes in transplantation and HPB surgery. He trained in Milan, Italy before coming to complete surgery residency and a research fellowship at the University of Illinois at Chicago. From there, he completed an HPB and transplantation fellowship at the University of Toronto and a solid organ transplantation fellowship at the University of Alberta. Dr. Molinari is interested in decision analysis as it applies to transplantation and HPV surgery, which you will hear about in this episode. We felt this was a critically important subject that has great impact on how we communicate with our patients and ascertain how we can fit treatment options into patients' desires and preferences. We hope you enjoy this episode, and please look for the paper published in HPV in 2020. All right, welcome back to the HPBA podcast. We're here with uh, Michele Molinari, uh, and we're here to discuss an article that he was the first author on in uh, the journal HPB. The article is entitled Patients' Treatment Preferences for Potentially Resectable Tumors of the Head of the Pancreas. So we'll make sure there's a link to the article so everybody can read the paper. If you want to read the paper before uh, you listen to the interview, now would be the time to do that. So go ahead and hit pause and uh, go dig this paper up and read it. But very interesting paper, and we're going to try to kind of get an idea of uh, the things that maybe may, didn't make it into the journal. So, so first thing, Dr. Molinari, you just kind of tell the listeners who you are and uh, where you're from. And sure. So I'm one of the HPB transplant uh, um, surgeons. I trained in uh, Chicago, and then I went to the University of Toronto, where I got exposed mm-hmm. to both. And then I worked at the Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia, uh, where mm-hmm. I did this uh, particular mm-hmm. study. And now I'm currently at the University of Pittsburgh. Fantastic. So um, a very interesting topic. And again, like Tim said, if you haven't looked at the article, at least pick it up and read the abstract. A very interesting topic that I think a lot of us surgeons think about as patients come to see us in the clinic is, is really what is their overall goals when coming into our office and what their perceptions of what we do, as well as what do they want us to do for them. So just starting out this episode, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your impetus for this, this project and what made you think of this topic? Um, well, I started thinking about this topic when I was still a resident. Uh, and the reason I was interested is because when we see patients in clinics, um, you don't have enough time to go through you know, explaining all the details about what is your treatment plan. So you can explain, you know, this is the best treatment because it has better survival. 
but then the fine details about hospital stay, you can say one week or 10 mm -hmm. days, um, but they don't really have enough time to see what other options they have. And if the other options, you know, can be at least uh, um, kind of, you know, um, attractive to them mm -hmm. because of less, you know, side effects or because, you know, the options that they have, maybe the survival is a few months la uh, lower, mm -hmm. but at the same time, they can carry on maybe what they want to do for the time, you know, that they are treated with, for example, chemotherapy versus surgery. And the most important part is when you look at, you know, the results of uh, duodenopancreatectomy, we always read the best results mm -hmm. because they are coming from the centers of excellence, right? Mm -hmm. You don't really realize when you go out in the real world um, that people are resected in small centers and those results are never published. You mm -hmm. have to do dig out. And I found that, you know, for duodenopancreatectomy especially, um, the chemotherapy versus surgery sometimes uh, for some groups of people they can be comparable in terms mm -hmm. of survival right. so at the very end when I became an attending I wanted to do this uh, study um, on patients coming to see me in clinics because I wanted to be comfortable and confident that what most of the people get surgery was what they really wanted so we put together, you know, the proposal. We we started, you know, looking at how many patients we needed. And uh, in Nova Scotia, the population is not really as as big as in big centers mm -hmm. in the United States. So to recruit people, you have really to do a lot of, you know, screening. And, right. and, and it took a long time to get finally the approval, the consent, and put together the data. Um, but I thought that it was important because no one has ever done it. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, because we do already propose WIPOL, my some of my colleagues said, you know, you're wasting time because you are already proposing something that the majority of the surgeons, when they will read your paper, say, so what? Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah I get it. You know, yeah. So, yeah. so that is a little bit of, you know, the internal kind of, you know, uh, contrast between, you know, using your time efficiently versus having a question that you really want to answer even mm -hmm. if it takes time and even if it doesn't impact you know the practice so after all these discussions i thought that you know the best way to do it was actually to do it myself with a coordinator mm -hmm. um, because some of my colleagues they were not really very interested they were concerned about having patients becoming confused and then mm -hmm. changing what they recommended and so it takes the different layers of um, considerations before you do these studies uh, especially because you never know the ability of your patients to understand the fine mm -hmm. probabilities mm -hmm. that you are proposing mm -hmm. so some of uh, some of the patients of course you know they were excluded for yeah. some reasons because they were not able to understand yeah. probabilities and some of them they were kind of very uncomfortable because mm -hmm. when you start going through the questionnaire, it takes about an hour uh, to go through the questions and change the probabilities. And so for these patients who are already stressed because of the diagnosis of possible pancreatic cancer, it's not easy. Right. So, but, you know, I was very pleased at the very end when we got at least, you know, 30 patients included and right. analyzed mm -hmm. that there was a significant 
consistency of uh, choices yeah. and preferences. So maybe this is a good time to just kind of in your own words, um, in a couple sentences, really just explain you know, what the overall goal of, of the project was for the listeners and then what your, your hypothesis was and in, in, in primary endpoint. So we'll start with the hypothesis. Yeah. The hypothesis in my mind was that because pancreatic cancer is mostly affecting individuals after the age of 60. Mm. Um, and if you look at the distribution of pancreatic cancer, the majority, like 80%, occurs between 65 and above. So if you look at the comorbidities of individuals coming to the clinics after the age of 65 or above, it's increasing. Mm -hmm. And so the hypothesis was that for individuals with severe comorbidities, cardiovascular, pulmonary, obesity, and so on, I thought that maybe some of these patients would probably consider surgery maybe not the best option. Yeah. Um, my idea was that for a group of individuals already in the 70s or above, I thought that many more patients would choose chemotherapy, mm -hmm. providing the fact that, you know, if you look at chemotherapy right now, you can actually have at least two and a half years of survival. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's better tolerated than someone who has bad right. complications after right. a Whipple. So when, when I started looking at, I basically created a little bit of scenarios where you have a side to side, the information first, and then you see the, you watch the video, and then you sit down again for an interview where you go over every single step. And then for the point of view of the most uh, important findings uh, that I was not expecting is that there was a very significant resistance to change mm -hmm. the choice from surgery to chemotherapy. Um, yeah. Even if the probability of dying from the operation was raised to the point of becoming almost 60%, so that means 40% right. of survival yeah. after surgery was considered enough to run the risk of undergoing surgery. So to do this, you use something called probability trade-off. Yes. And what is that? So it's a big name for yeah. something that if conceptually it's pretty easy. Yeah. So it's a, it comes from the economics world. Mm -hmm. um, when you propose a new product to the market, you want to know how much that product is valued. You can give a price, but the value that the consumer has for that product depends on how much intrinsically is valued by the person. Right, so right. if, for example, I give you a new, new phone, yeah. you never had one, so probably you value that much more than if you have already a phone and mm. you don't How much it. am I willing to pay for it? That <laughs> is exactly what yeah, yeah, is yeah. Uh, the probability trade-off. Do you have a background in marketing or anything? Or how, no. did you, how did you come across that? Well, my yeah. interest was in decision analysis. Yeah. So when I did my master in, uh, in, uh, during my fellowship, I was interested in making decisions mm -hmm. based on some kind of concepts. Yeah. So when I did the probability trade-off, basically is asking, you have two options. Maybe one is better than the other, but the options that you think it's better might come with a higher price. <clears throat> in terms of surgery, of course, you know, the higher prices go into an operation, having maybe lower quality of life mm -hmm. for the first mm -hmm. three months, mm -hmm. spending more time in the hospital, 
And of course, you you know that you know the probability of being readmitted to the hospital after a Whipple is about thirty five percent. So people who in Canada, for example, they live far away from the hospitals right. in rural areas. This is very intense because they have to travel. They have to right. basically have significant support, and some of them they don't. So right. the cost, the emotional cost, and financial yeah. cost is impressive. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I think just to put the numbers out there, I don't want to. I don't want to quiz you. Mm-hmm. Um, but the obvious findings that were really stood out to me, the tipping point, right? So you calculated kind of where 50% of people would say they wouldn't have surgery. Like you said, the perioperative mortality reached 57%. The risk of perioperative morbidity, 85%. Survival benefit, four months or less. And then the, the most shocking one to me was the hospital stay was 52 weeks. So <laughs> people were willing to spend a year in the hospital yes. for that chance of cure. And, I, you know, I was curious, one thing in the paper I didn't see is, what, how did you talk to the patients about cure? You know, I, I almost put quotations around that term cure. Yeah, so know. the definition of cure was when uh, we told the patients, you know, after the operation, there is always a risk of recurrent disease. And the recurrent disease doesn't really <clears throat> depend on, uh, on you. It depends on the biology mm-hmm. of the tumor. It depends on the margins of the resection. And of course, you know, cure was considered as a complete radical resection with negative margins. Mm-hmm. So, and the cure was considered only, you know, after the pathology can give you the report. So the information that was provided is that you go through an operation, the surgeons does not have any way intraoperatively of being 100% sure that the tumor is completely, re- you know, removed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, it comes back as mic- microscopic margins, and that is basically not curable. Um, and despite all this information was provided, and despite the fact that it was brought down to a level eight uh, for, you know, the language and also the concept so that they could actually be able to be explained to, mm-hmm. to everyone, um, Despite all this, you know, the patients really felt that surgery was the only way to proceed almost 97%. Yeah, yeah I was going to ask about that. So um, almost everybody wanted surgery at almost to more than a risk of a, a flip of a coin. They were willing to legitimately flip a coin if it meant that they would extend their life as compared to palliative chemotherapy. But taking that a step before coming to your office, do you think that these patients had made their mind up before they even got to you based on the information that they already had? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to do these studies, you, you, you don't really work in a completely sterile mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. So these patients go to see their fam- family physicians, right. so they have, you know, the endo- endoscopies who tells them, you know, that something is right, is wrong in the pancreas and that is what probably will occur. Um, so in, uh, in the paper I explain um, that these patients were already, for the majority, 60 to 65 percent, already been aware that there was a possibility of pancreatic cancer. And the majority of them were uh, given the recommendations to undergo surgery. Mm-hmm. And they were... Not by you. Before. Before they got to you. Yeah, yeah. 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 So the primary physicians, uh, I was surprised at how many primary physicians were already able to give them their strong recommendations about surgery mm-hmm. um, and they were already referred to the surgeon. So there is a, a, a selection bias mm-hmm. because right. I don't know how many patients fell through and they went back to the primary physicians and they were not referred to right, us. Right. 
because unfortunately that number is impossible to capture. Right. So for the patients who came to the surgical clinics, then of course, you know, they are already inclined to say, oh, I'm sent to see a surgeon, yeah. probably because surgery is the way to go. Mm -hmm. So that is for sure, it's a, it's a bias. Uh, it's yeah. impossible to remove that bias uh, when you do these studies sure. because otherwise you will have to interview people from the community without right. pancreatic cancer. Yeah, but it's you, pragmatic. I mean, that's, that's who right. comes to see us, right? Yeah. This is the population. I just find it very interesting to think that people were already given enough information they thought to make a strong decision before they even got to the person who gives them the information to make the decision. Yeah, and the, I mean, it sort of, you know, the nihilistic view, I guess, is that you spent two hours with these people <laughs> and it, it looked like not a single mind was changed, basically, right? There was one person who was told he shouldn't have surgery before he got to you, and that was and the one person that yes. chose not to have surgery. Yeah, so in, uh, in the psychology, we say that there is a um, stick to your decision. So if mm. you make a decision, mm. it's difficult sometimes to change it because you made the decision based on some concepts and it's very difficult to change it in uh, even in surgery, you know, when you mm. say, you know, these patients yeah. need an operation, so it's very difficult for someone to say, well, why don't you do it dif differently because yeah. we also function in that way. Right. So of course, you know, despite all the information, these patients had, you know, the strong feeling that um, surgery was the right thing to yeah. do. But as you know, I thought an interesting point brought up in the discussion was <clears throat> that you can't ask a hundred people off the street and expect those answers to apply in this situation, right? There's a, you, the stress of actually having a diagnosis of right. cancer probably affects your decision making quite a bit. Yeah. So I did a similar study by. Uh, asking individuals to do uh, compare radiofrequency ablation versus resection for hepatocellular carcinoma um, with the idea that you know because they are uh, you know similar in terms of uh, in terms of survival mm -hmm. they are different in terms of recurrence but survival is equal if you do a small ablation for tumors and in that study, I had to use only individuals who were cirrhotic but not affected by mm -hmm. the tumors. Mm -hmm. And because the <clears throat> ethic review board didn't give me the consent to interview people because they are already stressed by the tumor. A mm. different institution, Dalhousie, gave me the mm. approval. Mm. But the criticism is that if you don't ask individuals with the real cancer, yeah. your answers probably are different than if you ask individuals with the real disease. Yeah. Mm. Although um, there is ethical, you know, um, particular you know, contrast between people who are saying, you know, you should never put these patients at stress because you are asking too many questions. Yeah, but it's interesting um, to think about which <laughs> which decision is the right one, so to speak. You know, it's sort of like a living will. Yes. You have kind of a rational conversation before you really have to make that decision so that at the time that, you know, the stress is there, the decision's already made. Yes. Um, Obviously not possible, but it's interesting. But as you, as you probably, you know, share with me the experience where you have these individuals admitted to the hospital with the will and then they become sick and they change the will yeah. and they want yeah. to be intubated yeah. on dialysis. Yeah. Yeah. Because unfortunately decisions are not able to, um, you know, sometimes to be completely appreciated. And right. when you enter in the real conditions where you have mm -hmm. to face the real situations, you change your mind. Yeah. The proverbial and walking in their shoes. That's you know? right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, just to kind of recap again what Tim already said and what you're describing, patients in the study were willing to 
to not change their decision over surgery versus palliative chemotherapy up to a chance of mortality of 57% of the surgery uh, from surgery and they were willing to stay in the hospital up to one year if it meant prolonging their life which one of those was more shocking to you because I presume in the booklet you told them that they have at least about a two-year survival or so from palliative chemotherapy and they're willing to spend mm -hmm. a year of it in the hospital yeah so my, uh, I was impressed by the mortality because, you know, the hospital stay, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's some, I, I think, you know, some people were saying, you know, yeah, I don't really care. So they I'm went alive. up to, yeah. yeah, they went up to one year yeah. just because I had to continue to increase their, you know, their hospital stay until I said, you know, when are you yeah. telling me <laughs> that you want to change your mind? So the 52, I think, you know, that is to say, I don't care yeah. about yeah, yeah. the hospital stay. Yeah. But mortality is a very simple concept, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. and I was surprised that people say, you know, I rather die in the operating room, even in on the operative table, rather than run the risk of not being treated and cured. Um, the fear of cancer, I think, you know, that is much stronger than the fear of mm -hmm. falling asleep and never wake up. So that is what I think, you know, was the mm -hmm. message that I took from. I didn't think that. Yeah. Right. yeah. That's in a really, really interesting way to think about that. Wow. Um, so, so in terms of that, uh, you know, more actually with, with respect to that, has this changed how you talk to patients when they come see you? Yeah, so when, uh, when I see, I mean, in, in oncology now yeah. that I am on, on the transplant, I wear the transplant hat, it's mm -hmm. a little bit different. But when I was involved in a lot of uh, surgical oncology procedures, I, was, I always tried to explain in simple ways, you know, what are the potential uh, alternatives. So yeah. I... I introduced, you know, surgery is one of the potential treatments, but then there is other alternatives. I always gave them a little bit of, uh, an, uh, an in, you know, a little bit of uh, information about, you know, alternatives, which is doing nothing, mm -hmm. doing some alternative treatments such as chemotherapy, radiation therapy, mm -hmm. ablation therapy, or whatever was appropriate, and surgery. And the idea, in my opinion, is that we we can propose the best treatment that we think, you know, that is the best for survival, but we are very bad at understanding what are the main uh, reasons for these patients to be treated. Mm -hmm. So if you ask uh, someone, for example, if a survival is the main, you know, goal, then probably, you know, most of the surgical procedures have better survival than medical oncology mm -hmm. procedure or radiation oncology. But when you start looking at the values of that person, is that where you, it becomes a little bit kind of, you know, confusing. So I always try. Um, yeah. Some people, you know, they, they don't have, you know, significant concerns about surgery. But for some, you know, you start looking at, you know, if they're elderly, if they're mm -hmm. frail, mm -hmm. if they are afraid to go to a nursing home because they can't recover, mm -hmm. or if they are afraid that their quality of life is not going to be good enough after the operation, mm -hmm. then I saw people in, uh, in particular situations where they changed their mind. Interesting. To the next level then, mm -hmm. how should you know, people listening to this podcast and then even you know, Tim and I take this information to our clinics? So I don't have a specific, you know, tip of for course. everyone. <laughs> but you're an expert you know. in decision analysis. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
in uh, in my opinion, you know, if you do high impact surgeries like we do in HPB, yeah. uh, we should do some better preparation for these patients. You know, I've seen people coming in some clinics where, you know, they wait for 45 minutes outside, they see the surgeon 10 minutes, they sign a consent and they go to an operation mm -hmm. that maybe changes their lives. So I think, you know, that having, in my opinion, in the ideal world, it would be to have someone who is actually giving them information in the waiting area, That's where good. there yeah. is like an hour where they can actually yeah. be trying to have a conversation, trying to be understand, you know, what are the potential options, what are, you know, the potential risk and what the benefits. Because as a surgeon, um, most of us, we don't have enough time. I mean, yeah. you know, this was done when I was not on the service. So I was not on call. I was not, you know, I was going to the clinics and spending time prior of these families going into the room and then telling them, you know, if uh, we could do this interview. But as when I was on the service, I couldn't do it. So yeah. that would be my recommendation is to have a better way of, teaching our patients before they come to see us. So. Yeah, so I was going to ask about that. I mean, there, there are, you know, a couple things out there about, you know, like you guys use DVDs or, you know, giving a patient an iPad with a video on it before they come to see you or a YouTube video, all these things. Are you using any of that or where do you kind of, do you see that as, as the fix for this so, problem? Or? Yeah, I think, you know, DVDs are important, but, you know, unfortunately, I think, you know, that the, the typical DVDs that you see on the website, you know, there is always a little bit of a kind of, you know, a risk that the person doesn't really relate yeah, to that yeah. DVD because it's such a generic. Yeah, there's nuance to every it's, yeah. yeah, so it, interesting enough, and when I created the DVD prior to start the study, because I had to have that, you know, before I could recruit people, and they really related because they saw my face on yeah, the DVD yeah. and then they saw me you know asking the questions and they knew that I was a surgeon so they had a better way of interacting because they knew that the information was provided based on my personal experience and also on the literature and so on mm -hmm. and when uh, when I see these uh, DVDs or you know instructions they appear to be kind of you know too um, I will say too distant so yeah, in other words yeah, they don't yeah. really cover some of the questions that people yeah. have. so do you think if if as a surgeon you made your own video um it would be you know somewhat effective although i mean it's questionable again with given the results of your study that you spent all these hours and didn't right. change a whole lot of minds but potentially makes the more patient the patient a little more comfortable to ask you those questions during the 10 minutes or yeah so i would recommend to have you know some kind of you know a combination of videos as well as written material yeah. pictorial you know pictures because individuals are learning a lot from watching um what it means the operation where the you know the, the some of the question was how do you hook it up? So yeah. When you do the operation, where do you put it? Where where it goes? How does it change my ability to eat? And is there anything that I should do differently? So those are the questions that people are really interested in. And some of the videos where you have, you know, these kind of simplicities, they don't really give you enough mm -hmm. ability mm -hmm. uh, for the patients to feel, okay, now I know exactly what the surgeon is going to do. Yeah. It's a little bit too generic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just to switch topics a bit, you mentioned the word radiation, and it kind of sparked a question for me. 
how do you think that radiation would change this? You know, if you had a patient with locally advanced tumor uh, with more comorbidities or an older patient, mm -hmm. you know, there is some data that maybe definitive chemo radiation is almost as effective as surgery. Uh, do you think that that would have changed kind of the, the patient's perceptions? Yeah, so I have to say, you know, from this study, I will say that probably even if you add on the radiation chemotherapy mm -hmm. with fulfillinox therapy yeah. now, which might be more beneficial than gencentamine right. alone, um, I don't think, you know, people will change their mind. Yeah. I think, you yeah, know, that they're still kind of, you know, concerned about not having the tumor out. Yeah. That is yeah. what the message, a... you know, they were saying, I want this tumor out. That yeah, is... I think a lot of people have that, that <laughs> yeah. sentiment. There's like yeah. this mental thing about there's a cancer inside me, yeah. I want it out, you know. So on this topic, you know, I am uh, trying to now to do this another study on pancreatic cancer because I think, you know, that as a surgical community, we adopted the new adjuvant chemotherapy as the way to do it. You yeah, know, most yeah. of these uh, patients who come with resectable pancreatic cancer now, they are discussed at tumor boards and the tumor boards, uh, you know, I've gone to a few they say you know oh just treat them chemo radiation therapy prior and then you go in six weeks later and it's beneficial and so on but i've seen also people coming with resectable tumors and then represented six weeks later uh, and the tumor is already invading you know the vessels mm -hmm. and they are becoming unresectable so we make these important decisions but i am interested to know what the patient will yeah. do yeah. you know knowing that is resectable at now and you have to be treated with some chemo radiation therapy with the possibility of growth and possibility of being unresectable in six weeks or eight weeks uh, what would you choose yeah. um, I, it's not done yet but yeah that's, that's a really that's, that's really interesting I mean my one of the thoughts I had when reading the paper and the conclusions and, and drawing maybe the opposite conclusion the conclusion that you shouldn't take away from this paper is that patients are willing to accept a lot of risk and therefore <laughs> our risk thresholds should, should go up i think it highlights the importance of multiple streams of education and mm -hmm. and the role we have as surgeons to um, not only educate our patients but our, you know our colleagues as well because they were all these patients showed up saying i'm getting surgery no matter what and it reflected in their risk thresholds that you measured yeah, and uh, another comment I wanted to make is that, you know, if you read what's uh, happening in, uh, in some countries where they, they are not referred to surgeons because historically the WIPO procedure or the pancreatic adenocarcinoma has such a bad prognosis that there is, you know, a very large amount of uh, literature saying, you know, many, many patients are not referred because mm. they do not get information from their primary physician, gastroenterologist, mm. and they are already selecting them out mm. because they don't want them to go through an operation. So we, at, at this point, we can say, you know, that is true that some of these patients might have serious complications, but if you read this one and you extend mm. it mm. to, everyone should at least have a consultation with a surgeon because it looks like, you know, if they are fully informed, um, they still, would like to make the decisions of undergoing surgery if the surgical procedure is acceptable, if the surgeon thinks that yeah. these patients are um, acceptable <clears throat> surgical candidates. And I think, you know, that is, it's like we need to inform the patients also, we need to ask our colleagues 
you are seeing the patient before to be as open-minded yeah. and yeah. to refer yeah. them to us. Public service announcement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, particularly in the setting of you know, we heard it, we heard some talks about extending resectability and you know the things Dr. Trudy and and some of the leaders are doing with the you know more extensive resection. So, you know, the patients clearly the patients want to undergo that risk if there's a if there's a good chance, and I think that's where you know, obviously our selection has to come in and kind of that, that's when I read this paper, it almost makes the case for a little bit of paternalism. And I, you know, I don't know how, how you see that, but you reconcile that, you know, yeah. Cause I, you know, if I, as a surgeon, I wouldn't want half my patients dying, you know, mm -hmm. that would be too much stress for me. I, you know, and so there's a, you know, there's a trade off here and I, obviously I don't know where the line is, but you know, I think that's the, the hard thing after reading your paper is, well, you know, there is always, you know, a little bit of a difference. If you measure uh, what physicians consider an acceptable risk yeah. and what patients consider an acceptable risk in, in many, many, uh, not just in pancreatic cancer, but in other, like in living donor, in living donation for the liver, kidneys, and so on, patients are keen to undergo interventions with higher risk and surgeons we feel that we do that every day so our threshold mm -hmm. becomes lower because you don't want to feel responsible for outcomes and bad outcomes that you usually think as outliers so right. every one of us we can accept you know that the majority of patients should survive but when you have a bad outcomes you feel extremely extremely um, powerless and mm -hmm. depressed and so on and that basically enters in our decision but of course, you know, as you mentioned, we should not be paternalistic mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. We should just accept a little bit higher risk if the patient is willing to. It's difficult to measure where, you know, the right line is. Yeah. yeah. And maybe, you know, and maybe that's a place where, again, you know, referring to a high volume center that, that does those really extensive resections where, you know, maybe their ability to deal with the risks and, and complications and things is better. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. that is also, you know, beneficial for not only for the patients, but also for the entire group, because, you know, if you are performing an operation with a bad outcomes and you are the only one who made the decision, who made the, the surgery and, you know, you just basically are affected much more than if you work in a cohesive group of individuals who basically mm -hmm. say, well, you did everything possible, you did the operation right, there was no mistakes and, you know, there are poor outcomes sometimes occur for random events. But of course, you know, that leads to the, the conclusion that, you know, we should basically do these operations in centers where you have the best surgical experience, you have the best radiologist, you have the best, mm -hmm. you know, intensivist, and so that you can rescue patients who have yeah. complications. Well, Dr. Molinari, thank you so much for spending some time with us here and talking about your paper. For those who've listened, again, we'll make sure to place in the article in our, in our show notes and um, look forward to Dr. Molinari's further papers coming out that he described in the interview. This is a really interesting topic. Any, we'll give you the mic for the, the last comment. Anything yeah. else you want to say to the audience? No, I would say thank you, uh, you know, for your kind uh, interviews and for your comments. And uh, I think, you know, that as uh, pancreatic cancer continue to be a very challenging, you know, uh, disease, I think, you know, that my contribution was just to make sure that we feel comfortable that we are doing the right thing yeah. for the surgical yeah. perspective. That's a humongous <laughs> contribution. <laughs> <laughs> great. That's great. Thank yeah. you.
Dr. Molinari, thank you very much again for spending some time with us. Is there anyone you want to thank or anybody you want to highlight that helped you out with this project before we finish up? Yes, I would like to, to, to mention that these studies usually are very difficult to be supported because there is, you know, a little bit of an infancy of, uh, of uh, this defining what is patient's preferences in HPV. But I was very lucky to be supported by uh, research funds from Cracks Calls Pancreatic Cancer Society, which is uh, interesting enough. It's a society that was started by Stephanie Condon. I operated on her dad who had pancreatic mm -hmm. cancer. Um, the operation did, uh, did, did, did lead him to die in the hospital after 45 mm -hmm. days from uh, complication. Um, and therefore, they decided that it would be very important to be able to um, educate families and mm. patients and support this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, research. So I would like to, you know, to mention that uh, they have also a lot of educational material online. Uh, it's accessible to everyone and they participate in many, many interventions where they have every month a meeting with families and meeting with patients who had surgery or who mm. are going to be yeah. having surgery so that they can share their experience and become very educated. Yeah. And that's, again, what is the name of the, of the charity? It's called Craig's Cause, Craig's Cause. Pancreatic Cancer Society. Got it. We'll put the link to the website in the show notes all for all you out there. Yeah. All right. Thank all right, you. Thank awesome. You.